You're listening to audio from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. If you'd like to check out more resources or learn about our ministry, please visit holycrosstucson.com. If you have a Bible with you, pull that out. We'll be in Psalm 135. You can follow along with me here. Kids, if you're at home in your living room, uh, grab your Bible. Psalms is right in the center of your Bible. So if you open it up halfway through, you can find Psalms. And we'll be in chapter 135, reading select verses. Praise the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Give praise, O servants of the Lord, who stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of our God. Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing to his name, for it is pleasant. For the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel as his own possession. For I know that the Lord is great, and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does, in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. He it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain, and brings forth the wind from his storehouses. Verse 13. Your name, O Lord, endures forever. Your renown, O Lord, throughout all ages. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray by your spirit, living in us, Lord, that you will illuminate our hearts and minds to hear your word, to receive it in faith, that you will minister to us, that you will teach us and show us uh, through having ears to hear and eyes to see just what the glory is of your truth given to us in your word. Prepare us now to receive it in faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, thanks, Peter and James. Let's uh, get into God's word in Psalm 135. And hello again to everybody at home. Now, the scene in Psalm 135, strangely enough, it reminds me a lot of every University of Arizona basketball game at home at McHale Center. How is that, you ask? I'll, I'll explain to you. If you have actually been to a game at McHale Center before tip-off and been in your seats to watch the opening of the game, you will have seen a video played. It's a promo video uh, right at center court, above the court, on the videos, uh, this amazing high production video. You may know how it goes. 69 NBA draft picks, 32 conference championships, 28 All-Americans, 17 Sweet 16s, 11 Elite Eights, four Final Fours, and one national championship. And then it says this, is Arizona. I have goosebumps actually just rehearsing, saying that. Now it all started when Coach Miller came to the University of Arizona. He wanted to do something that hadn't been done before for the fans and the players, uh, for the coaches, for the alumni, uh, for the students. Um, He wanted to do something as everyone gathered in the court. He wanted to remind everyone of who who, uh, Arizona was and where they had been, he wanted to remind them of their program's history and to inspire them towards confidence in what it could be again. And if you're an Arizona, a discouraged Arizona fan like myself, uh, been one for over 20 years, you watch this highlight reel and you're lifted into hope. You, you are encouraged, you're confident, you believe that, oh yeah, we've been there, we could be there again, we can do well. 
Now let's go back to Psalm 135. Psalm 135 is a highlight reel. It's a highlight reel of God's character and his work. It is meant to lift our hopes as we gather for worship in times of present discouragement and disappointment as living in a broken world and even in an unpredictable world. And Psalm 135 is a mosaic of God's accomplishments. And it's a mosaic of all these different uh, scriptures. It's actually repeated scriptures. The psalmist takes a scripture from Deuteronomy. He takes scriptures from other portions of scripture. And, and, it's, and he puts it all together in a mosaic to, to form this highlight reel of different decades of God's people. You may notice that the Bible does this a lot. The Bible repeats itself a lot. And it's not because the Bible's writers have run out of things to say. It actually repeats itself because... It is important to hear the same thing over and over again. It's important because we forget. Uh, we we want to hear it over and over again until it becomes part of who we are and how we think, and it, it changes and affects and transforms our emotions. Like a teacher using repetition or song uh, to, to uh, remember uh, arithmetic mathematics and uh, uh, songs and to remember rules of science and of... Um, geometry, or whatever it is. The Holy Spirit uh, speaks to writers of Scripture in telling them over and over and over again the truths of God and who He is and what He has done. And what is it here in Psalm 135 that, that we have such a difficult time remembering as His people that we need to hear so often? Well, it is this, that God has always been faithful to His people, that he's faithful to provide for our needs today, and he will be faithful to us in the future no matter what comes our way. No matter what happens to us, God is faithful. And the psalmist gets everyone together. He starts out this psalm. He gathers everyone in the court of God. He, he gathers everyone in the temple of God to worship God, in the house of God. And in a similar way that people would gather in an arena for a basketball game, they would be reminded of God's faithfulness as they watch the highlight reel of God's work. The psalmist communicates that God is faithful. He will always be faithful. He communicates these truths through three dominant themes in the psalm. That God's faithfulness is rooted in his goodness. His faithfulness is sustained by his power. And his faithfulness is secure by his grace. Now let's start where the psalm starts by telling us that it's rooted in God's goodness. It's rooted in goodness. The psalmist says, praise God. Praise him again. Do it even louder. Praise him now so we all can hear. He, he tells us to do this over and over again. There's good reason to praise God. And among the supreme reasons to praise God is the fact that he is good. He's a good God. What does it mean to be good? Well, it's a difficult word to define. It's like defining the word beauty or desire. But you know it when you see it. It's the thing that satisfies, the thing that makes us feel full and, and whole and complete and full of joy. It's the thing that makes us feel deep pleasure in our heart and in our bodies. Now, maybe you're thinking, doesn't the Bible discourage us from this kind of pursuit of, of being pleasure seekers and just pursuing what makes us feel good? That it's ungodly to live our life in the pursuit of, of things that just satisfy us? 
Well, the Bible actually tells us the opposite. The Bible tells us that we should be people who live our lives in the pursuit of the thing that satisfies us the most. And the Bible tells us that thing is a person, it's God. And so it's not that we should be people who aren't pleasure seekers. It's that we should be people who seek our pleasure in God. God is so good that there's nothing in all of the earth as good as him. The world is full of such good things as gifts and benefits from God. But none of those things are as good as God. And so the invitation of the psalm is not abstinence from seeking pleasure, but a call to find our lasting pleasure and satisfaction and fulfillment and joy and identity in knowing God and nowhere else. You can see it again in verse 3. Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing to his name, for it is pleasant. Look at the second part of that verse. Sing to his name, for it is pleasant. It is pleasant. Let me ask you, what do you think in that passage is pleasant? What is the psalmist saying? Sing to the Lord, sing to his name, for it is pleasant. For all the English majors out there, what is the adjective describing? Is it describing the name of the Lord? Or is it describing the act of singing to him? Well, here it could be both. They're they're both pleasing to us. God is good, and we are created for the purpose of finding our satisfaction and pleasure in Him. But when we confess this to God, when we confess through singing and uh, through confession of our faith to God with our voices and our heart, that He is the one that only satisfies us completely, do you know what we're doing? In that moment, we are doing and feeling and believing precisely the very thing that we were created to think and to believe and to do. Of course it's going to fill us with joy if we're doing the action and believing the very thing that we are created to do. Of course when we do that thing, we're going to be filled with pleasure. We're doing the very thing that we were born to do. And what do we mean when we we look at somebody who, uh, look at a man who's running and we look at that person and say, well, that, that man was born to run. Well, we're saying that that person is, is, is coming alive. That person is coming alive when, when he's running. What do we mean when we say that, that that woman was made to paint? We're saying that when that woman paints, there's something in her heart and in her body and in her emotion that is ignited. And she's doing the very thing that makes her feel complete. You see, we're we're never closer to joy in all of our life than when we are seeking our satisfaction in God. Everything else will disappoint, but God never will because God is good. We are never closest to being satisfied than when we seek to find our satisfaction ultimately in Him. And so God is good and, and it's rooted, his faithfulness is rooted, and he is a God who is kind and good and gives us exactly what we need that makes us feel fulfilled. But he goes on, with the psalmist also says that his faithfulness is, is uh, carried out in the theme that it's, that it's sustained by his power. When the psalmist confesses in verse 5, I know that the Lord is great 
and that our Lord is above all gods. He's calling our attention to the fact that God is infinitely powerful, He's infinitely great, and He's infinitely intimately involved in His creation to such a degree that it means that God will do and can do everything that He intends to do. It even says this much, whatever the Lord pleases, He does. Do you see that? Every bit of creation at every moment at any time owes their very functioning and existence and their every moment to moment to the active hand of God in that life. And where this is often a topic of controversy for people, in the Bible it's a topic of worship, that God can do whatever He wants, when He wants, and how He wants. It's right to associate the the greatness of God and His ability to do whatever He wants when He wants as as His sovereignty. That He can do whatever He pleases. As the scripture says, when we see the clouds moving in the sky, well, this is because of the hand of God. When it rains and when lightning strikes, it it asks God permission first. When kings are established or when kingdoms fall, It is God's sovereign doing. Nothing happens outside of the eternal and perfect and good will of God. To confess, as the psalmist says, I know that the Lord is great. It's meant to correct, in part, it's meant to correct the image that we have in our mind that that God takes creation, He winds it up like an old clock or toy, and then it runs its course. But instead, we are meant to see God as an intimately involved creator who is all-powerful. One of the special names that describes this, that God's people uh, used for God, was the name El Shaddai. Maybe it's a name you have never come across before. Maybe it's one that you just remember from the 1980s when A.B. Grant sang about God as El Shaddai. It's a combination of two meanings. And those two meanings are the one who is sufficient and the one who is all-powerful. And these two uh, themes and these two names come together in the one name, El Shaddai, that describes who God is. He's the one who meets our needs and he's the one who's powerful enough to make sure that all of his purposes will come true for us. That's what the scripture has in mind when it tells us that God is great. He displays his absolute control over the natural world, over the spiritual world, over the physical world, over sickness, and even over death itself. God's greatness is displayed in his power, and and he displays his power not by manipulating or controlling us, but a power that frees us and provides for us. It's a power that enables God to accomplish all that he's promised to do in us. Nothing, absolutely nothing will get in the way of his plans for us. What good is it if God says, I will be faithful to you and I will accomplish the plans that I have for you if he's not powerful enough to do that? This topic is often used as theological debate, but for us it must become a, a daily and practical choice, a daily confession, just like the psalmist to confess that God, you are not only good, but 
You're sovereign. You're great. We're meant to internalize these truths that we are created by God, that we are cared for, and that we were made and to be fulfilled with the pleasure and joy of God, and nothing gets in the way of God to accomplish that very thing for us, no matter what. Let me say it again. You were created and cared for, and nothing gets in the way of God's plans for you. Can you say that? Can you confess that like the psalmist? I know that the Lord is great. I know that the Lord is good. He does what he pleases. You see, good theology, more than anything, is meant to move us to a place of trusting in God. Not just to fill our head with head knowledge that God is a God who's good and he does good things, that he's a God who's great and he's powerful. It's actually meant to move us to a place of trusting God in our circumstances. Because God created everything out of nothing, because he still sustains all of his creation, he sustains our lives by his almighty power and provision. He is great and there is none like him. How can we know that his plans for us are good and that God will use his power and his mightiness and his greatness as a way to bless us rather than to judge us and to curse us. Well, the psalmist tells us that we are secure by God's grace. We're secure in his grace. Let's go finally to this attribute, this theme in Psalm 135. You know, so you can see throughout the psalm a highlight reel of God's actions. Some of those actions are used uh, to punish the wicked, and some of those actions are used to bless his people. How do we know which side that we're on? Will we receive blessing from God and rescue, or will we receive punishment and judgment? We find out which recipient we are in verse 14. He says, the, the Lord will vindicate the people, his, sorry, the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. God will vindicate his people. This is an interesting word. Let me ask, to call a person a vindictive person, is that a good word? Is that a nice thing to say to a person? That person's vindictive? Of course not. That's, that's not a good thing. You don't want to be called a vindictive person. What does it mean? It means you're a person who's always out for revenge. It's a, a means a person that, that whenever you are wronged, someone's going to come and make sure that you know that you were wrong. It's a person who's argumentative and defensive and judgmental. They never let a wrong go unpunished. But here's something strange that is happening. God is not the vindictive in the sense that God is a God who's defending himself. He's not arguing his case before us who have wronged him. He's not judging his people according to their record or character. No, he's doing something amazing. He is showing them compassion. He's defending his people, even though they have wronged him. He's arguing for our pleasure and his plans for us, even though we have not deserved it in our life. And he's judging us, not according to our record or character, but according to his. Do you see what's happening here? He is good. He is great. He does whatever he pleases. And a king who is a tyrant, 
who can do whatever he wants. He does wickedness for his own benefit. But a king who is good and has the ability to do whatever he wants, we see that he here shows grace. He shows compassion. His grace in this psalm is is shown in the Israelites' salvation from slavery in Egypt. That's throughout the psalm, where God was good to hear the cries of his people for help. He was great in defeating the most powerful army in all of the world at the time. And he was gracious to rescue them, even when there were times when they were unfaithful. The Bible tells us that this rescue of God's people from slavery in Egypt was merely a sign of a greater kind of salvation that the people of God would experience, demonstrated at the cross of Christ. The church of Jesus today, where we find ourselves today, is the Israel of God of the past. Their history is our history. As Israel of the Old Testament derived comfort and strength from remembering their past, we ought to derive strength and comfort from remembering ours. We are to look at God's highlight reel. We are to look at his faithfulness to his people forever. We are to see that he beautifully displays his strength and his power to defeat our enemies, spiritual or physical. On the cross, if you hear anything at all this morning, then please hear this. God vindicates his people in this way. He defends his plans for us by condemning Jesus on the cross. He argues for our pleasure as Jesus hangs on the cross and cries out in agony. He judges Jesus according to our sins so that we could be judged according to his righteousness. Do you want to know the goodness of God? Do you want to be convinced of the greatness of God and the grace of God? Then here it is. When a person trusts in Jesus Christ, at that very moment, he or she is clothed with the perfect holiness of God so that even though the believer is still sinful, he or she is judged by God as blameless. This is bigger than you and I probably think. If God is always pleased with his son Jesus, his perfect faithful son, and you and I are united to Christ by grace through faith, confessing our hope is found in him, then you are the recipient of God's unending affection and pleasure. Always. Then that means that God is continually fighting for you, defending you, creating and sustaining circumstances in your life so that his purposes will always come true for you. It's possible we don't get this. And it's possible we don't have a category for this kind of grace in our life for a couple reasons, because deep down inside, I think that we're convinced that there is a way that you and I can save ourselves. Maybe we need a little help. We're good people. We've made mistakes, but we just need Jesus to kind of pick us up and show us the way. But deep down inside, we believe, wrongly believe, that we have the right tools. We have the right ambition. We have the right kindness, and we have the right righteousness, the right determination to do what God has asked us to do. 
that each one of us should be able to save ourselves if we really want it bad enough. And so the answer then for our salvation and rescue is to try harder, to want it more, to dig deep and find strength to do what God has asked us to do. Or possibly deep down inside, we can't believe that someone would actually love us as much as God loves us. As to give us all their their personal benefits that they have worked for, the personal righteousness of Christ because he has lived a sinless life. He lived the life that we should have lived. We don't think that someone should give their hard-earned blessing and reward to someone who doesn't deserve it, like us. You see, Jesus didn't come to the earth to show us the way to salvation. He came to be salvation. He came to be the way. He came to adopt us into his family, not to hire us as his slaves, but to make us his family. If this is really what it means to be a Christian, then your union with Christ is core to your identity for how you live and how you think at any moment in the day. That's why the psalmist ends with an invitation. Really, it's an exhortation to all of us. If God is good and God is great and God is gracious to us to fight for his blessing for us, then he says, then praise him. Bless his name. Live your life in such a way that gives him glory in all that you do and all that you say and how you live out your affections. He says, house of Aaron, praise his name. House of Levi, bless his name. All of Israel, Put your name in here. Put your family name in here. Put your last name in place here in this scripture. God's grace does not excuse us from a life of holiness, but rather his grace empowers us for a life of holiness. Do you see that he is good? Do you see that he is great? Can you confess that you are held tightly in his care and nothing can take us from his love, no matter what? then praise him. Bless his name. He is faithful, and he will fight for you. Let's pray.